Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Listen to the new Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us. The Copper Pig Brewery in Lancaster, New Hampshire, is brewing traditional and innovative high-quality beers, as well as serving a large menu of creative comfort foods appealing to all walks of life, with daily specials sourcing many ingredients locally. Charitable involvement and support of their community is the cornerstone to the Copper Pig Brewery's mission. Voted number one in New Hampshire by WMUR Viewers' Choice two years in a row, 2018 and 2019. Please join me at the Copper Pig. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief and Wildlife Heritage, a foundation of New Hampshire at nhwildlifeheritage.org and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. Please. 
Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. John, it's episode 41, and before we get into this episode, which is a very dynamic episode, we, we just got done doing a Thin Green Line podcast with Jason Piccolo, and, and man, I'll, I'll tell you, these, these people that are just helping us understand what's going on in the world today is pretty relevant to the Thin Green Line, and you've known Jason for a long time, and I just it was just an honor to do that, so it's fresh on my mind. I have to bring it up in the Warden's Watch episode that the Thin Green Line, we're going outside of the Warden's realm and, and doing something different so people can listen to that and we're going to focus on wardens watch with wardens and that that fringe stuff but uh, jason piccolo what, what what a neat guy dr jason piccolo too yeah great guest a lot of knowledge um been all over the country in law enforcement roles and we won't give away the farm and for our mm. listeners but yeah kind of extending the the passion and the love and and the the importance of our great outdoors and our public safety outside of game warden circles, finding that all of these guys and gals that we have on the Thin Green Line podcast are kind of game wardens at heart, aren't they? Wayne? Yes. They, you, you, know? you hit the They're nail all, on the head. They all, <laughs> <laughs> they all even feel the same thing. And, and when we get into our guest on this warden's watch podcast coming up, Jack Bailey. Yes. Senator Jack Bailey. And, and a Senator, you know, and when yeah. you think about our political environment right now, regardless of left or right, the more conservationists, especially from a game warden front, mm. which we're a little biased on, that we can have in the political arena, you know, the better for the thin green line nationally on every level, yes. regardless of where you stand politically, right? Preser- you know, basically conserving those outdoor resources through experience. And Jack is such a passionate, vetted game warden, you mm. know, what he brings to the political arena through real on the ground experience and not just pushing a bill that was suggested by people on the ground like us. Man, it's just awesome. And what, what a great conversation we had there. Boy, you, you, you hit the nail on the head to have somebody there. And even his colleagues, Democrat, Republican, reach out to him because of that experience, because of the no that he brings to the table on the Senate of Maryland. It's, it was just awesome to, to hang out with him. Uh, he gave me a tour of the Capitol. He gave me a citation oh, for my work in wildlife law enforcement and the ongoing stuff. I was down there for an Operation Game Thief fundraiser. I was a keynote speaker on, and it was just, uh, it was, it was an awesome trip and the guys in Maryland are just just like every game warden they're hard working they had great cases it was good to hear that and to have the support of a senator like Jack Bailey is just uh, there's just an awesome thing and I really enjoyed uh, this podcast and I he does a case that I believe is the probably the most pivotal case because striped bass on the east coast is the ocean fish mostly targeted for sportsmen it is uh, it's the, yep. it's an awesome sporting fish and it's all starts in the Chesapeake Bay that's that's with the, the hatchery right. for the striped bass and that the case that he goes into turns the tides it, it's pretty awesome and i think if you're a striped bass fisherman get those early 2000s you're going to see 
how they improved the fishery. And you're going to remember how it wasn't very good and it got better and it got better. And it was because of the work of the Maryland DNR as well as Virginia and a lot of uh, you know agencies working together on that. But he, he discusses that, which is just pretty cool to get the inside on a species that law enforcement had a direct a direct relationship and bringing back from the brink of, um, you know, I won't say extinction, but it was, it was, it wasn't good. It wasn't good. And to bring them back to where they are today is, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. It's a great story, especially being such a prime resource management issue on your side of the, of the country, man. Mm. So great content. Can't wait to see this one drop and uh, have our listeners and viewers really enjoy that one. Yeah. So here goes episode 41 warden's watch. <laughs> So today's podcast is with Senator Jack Bailey from Maryland. And the awesome thing about Senator Jack Bailey is he's a former game warden. And that's very unusual, isn't it? Can I call you Jack, a Senator? I feel like I, <laughs> I feel like I should call you Senator every time I speak. So, uh, <laughs> no, Jack is Jack is fine. Great. And we were talking earlier Jack, about that it is rare, and you only know of two other game wardens that are actually in politics? That's who I'm familiar with. Um, uh, Pete down in uh, Texas is a state senator, and then in uh, in uh, Colorado, there is a state uh, representative that was a former uh, game warden. The only two others that I have uh, heard of. But I'm going to tell all your listeners, we, we're very, um, we're represented very poorly, so we need more people to, uh, to jump in. And it's not as bad as you think when you talk about politics. No, and I think, uh, you know, conservation issues are part of politics. And, I mean, there's no better representation than getting a game warden in, in, involved in those. And I'm very happy you're involved. And, you know, we talked before about all the issues that you, you know, from Second Amendment issues right through, you know, con- conservation issues, especially where you're located in Maryland. There's a there's a lot of conservation stuff going on. We talked about striped bass, you know, the waterfowl that goes down to your area. It, it's what, what what a crazy great place a to be a game warden and b to live i'm jealous jack because uh i've been there i understand that country and man you get some serious waterfowl and the striped bass fishing the the coastal fishing is just dynamite in maryland we're very fortunate um to have mountains uh, in western maryland and have a huge commercial offshore fishery out of ocean city and everywhere in between we surround the chesapeake bay as estuary and it gives us a lot of opportunity to work with not only the resources but the public and the commercial uh, industry that is based around the chesapeake bay yeah that's 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 a huge uh it's the hatchery for the striped bass on the whole east coast right that that's correct it is uh the chesapeake bay is of the atlantic um, coast striped bass 95 percent of those fish uh come from either the, the chesapeake bay either some parts of maryland or virginia are the spawning grounds oh that's, that's, a, that's an awesome place so 
Um, how many years, Jack, were you a game warden? So I was a game warden, uh, Maryland Natural Resource Police Officer, for 30 years. And I retired to, uh, to my farm here in um, southern Maryland. And then I was retired for two years. And then I entered the world of uh, running for state senator. And I was elected. And so I have done that for two years. Great. And you say it's not as bad as we all think it is. <laughs> well, in being in public safety, we really do um, get the opportunity. And it's always rewarding to help, um, to help people and to help things like the resources. Sometimes they can't speak for themselves. But uh, when we're dealing with the um, legislature and we're talking about making uh, rules, uh, some of the rules that uh, I've been able to uh, uh, get past, some of them, I took away some really um, old, out-to-date uh, rules that didn't make sense when I was an officer. And the other thing is trying to put some common sense into it. When we have discussions, we actually have people that have been um, out there. And um, in Maryland, uh, in the Senate, there's 47 of us, and there's only myself that has any former uh, law enforcement or conservation experience. So I do get to get up on the floor um, quite often and speak about, well, this is actually the way it is um, out there if you're on the bay. Because there's a lot of people that want to help and they, um, they want to provide uh, you know, a lot of new laws and we're going to make it better. We're going to help the estuary. We're going to help the fish. We're going <clears> to <throat> help the animals. A lot of times um, they really don't uh, bring a lot of uh, factual information and they don't uh, work with the science uh, behind it. Uh, idea gets uh, motivated and um, it, uh, it's like a snowball going downhill. Uh, sometimes uh, it can get away from us. And I'm sure that uh, most of your listeners will understand that in a lot of states, um, it would be much easier if the politicians were out of um, creating rules and regulations that affect the uh, resources. Oh, absolutely. I think that's how it's set up nationwide, but, you know, that the department actually sets the rules for most places, but we have those that sometimes emotions get out. And I think of the mountain lion thing in California, they took it away from the department, put it in the hands of legislatures and, you know, Consequently, uh, they're not basing in things on the science, which uh, we're basing on an emotion and getting elected. And, and that is a slippery, slippery slope that uh, me and my uh, co-host John Norris talk about all the time, the dangers of making these things emotional rather than, you know, and political rather than science-based. So it's awesome to have you there and bringing that up. So... But I would like to get back to the history of Maryland because it's got such a rich history. And after talking to Warden Bartles and his museum, it's, uh, I don't know of any other, you know, wildlife law enforcement agencies that have mounted cannons and machine guns to their boats. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that, that's I'll something. I have to say, um, you know, I grew up uh, on the Potomac River, which separates Virginia um, and Maryland, uh, right into Washington, D.C. And back in 1868, when our uh, enforcement department was started, it was mainly started um, just for the 
uh, tax that they would get off of the oysters. And the fact that the oysters, um, they didn't want Virginia to get more uh, money uh, by selling the oysters and taking the taking the oysters out of Maryland back to Virginia. That was a big part of uh, what was happening. And this happened uh, well into the mid-1900s, because when I started in, in the 80s, 1980s, some of the people that uh, I were my supervisors had actually been in uh, gunfights with boats that were poaching oysters. <laughs> and actually, um, one of the people that... Uh, uh, one of my supervisors and his friend, and actually uh, Roger uh, ran a car dealership uh, here because you know he was a young officer and he went out there on the Potomac River and they got into a gun battle over um, some a boat from Virginia that was poaching oysters, and they were down behind the the um, console when they were shooting over top and. The, Virginia guys were shooting, and in the process, uh, Waterman um, was um, was actually shot and killed. And um, when Roger got back, um, I was down there actually as a young officer looking at a vehicle, and he was like, "You know, I was out there as a as I had your job for for a little while." He said, "But the day we got in a gun battle over oysters." And he said, and a man got shot and killed. He said, when we came back to shore, he said, "I decided that I was going to have a different job." And now um, his um, son who's actually uh, uh, a friend and acquaintance of mine he, he runs that dealership now and we still uh, joke about it that uh, you know his dad was out there but he uh, he didn't he didn't want to be out there after that and that is when you if there are some books oyster wars of the chesapeake bay that actually talk about the significance of this um, and the fact that back around the turn of the century the the actual oyster buyers and some of the packers, they had the ability to mint their own money. Um, that is how influential and important um, that was to our region and our area. Wow. And we're, we're talking, what the, what's the time frame where we're talking? We're talking around the uh, turn of the century, around 1900 was mm-hmm. when that was uh, taking place. Yeah. Now, this, this gun battle took place in the, uh, I would say, I, I went on in the 80s, and Roger had probably been not working for 20 or 30 years around the 50s or 60s, 1950, 1960s. Yeah, because that's about the time frame, so you guys were mounting uh, cannons and machine guns on your boats. <laughs> <laughs> they did actually have water-cooled machine guns on the front of the boats, um, and... Um, so you can see how things are very cyclic. Um, they definitely uh, were not there uh, during my career. Uh, a lot of times we were often uh, referred to as being uh, friendlier and needed to have much more um, <clears throat> compassion uh, as we were dealing with people. But, uh, but you know, we, they did talk about the times when the machine guns were on the front of the uh, patrol boats. And that was not, uh, that was just a time of normal uh, normalcy. There was no uh, no extracurricular activity going on at that time. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely different because you're right. I, to see a machine gun was probably normal for them, and now it's not normal for us. But and it is cyclic because we're we're, we're you know maybe they're not machine guns, but we're have we're a lot more armed than we used to be. Uh, probably during your tenure because we we 
are having issues and you know with terrorism threats and things like that so uh we definitely have um armament probably not out in the open but uh available or i hope they are available <laughs> right i i can remember um and I'm going to date myself here just a little bit, but when I started, uh, we only had uh, revolvers and uh, we did not have uh, uh, OC spray or I can first remember when we got our first batons, um, they did, we did not even have those. It was, uh, it was either you uh, dealt with somebody with your hands or you, the only thing you had alternative was a handgun. Mm. No, absolutely, and I, I came on just as that was starting to change as well, But uh, and that was, you're right, you had your handgun and you didn't have anything else, no OC, no batons, no no intermediate weapons. It was uh, go hands-on or, or shoot the person, so that, a lot of that has changed as well as the training, but... Being uh, in that in that striped bass zone, you've you've had a lot of work with striped bass, haven't you? Because that's a and and that's a, a resource for the whole East Coast. I, I mean, yeah, the the hatchery or the the you know where where the striped bass originate is that Chesapeake area, but that goes from Maryland to Maine, and that's where they 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 have a spawn, and we catch them up in in Maine, and it's 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 a resource for the whole East Coast, and you guys are kind of in charge of that. <laughs> Well, dealing with the, the nursery, um, we really uh, have a big impact on the, every, every different state's uh, ability to manage their resources. Because if we don't manage it correctly here in Maryland, um, it, could, uh, it could negatively affect the economy of any one of the coastal states that also relies um, on, on the strike bass. Now, I would say that uh, in enforcement, I did have a big part in dealing with um, a couple of very large conservation cases dealing with striped bass, one of the largest ever prosecuted uh, through the Department of Justice, through federal court in Greenbelt. Um, we did a, uh, a case in the early 2000s. Um, it was uh, the IWTF, Interstate um, uh, wildlife task force and when we did that um, it was comprised of people from maryland and people from virginia and then we also had uh, we were assisted by the fish and wildlife uh, agents that worked in the area and then the case was eventually prosecuted through uh, the department of justice and a, a small team of very uh, educated prosecutors called ENRD, the Environment and Natural Resource Department of, Just Department of Justice that's out of Washington, D.C. And I'll tell you just a little bit about that uh, case because what we had was with dealing with striped bass, you had every single um, state had different rules and regulations. Now, of course, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission gave the initial um, idea this is what these are the requirements that you have to follow and then each state can set up their own and each state had its own um, biologist that came up with their own regulatory process and i think this is uh, a good example of just how important a conservation officer can be because as conservation officers we knew that there were problems with the regulations and we knew that because of the financial incentive 
that a lot of people were making, whether it be this state or in other states, even in the markets, the commercial markets, whether it be in New York or California, the, the fish actually, um, everybody was making a lot of money off of illegal activity. And we tried to address it in the uniform fashion, and we tried to address it with a bunch of the biologists and it was always, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people have heard this, if that's really going on, prove it to us. Um, it's, it's really not, it's only, that's only happening or about 10% of the people, they're just those bad eggs. They're the ones that are dealing with it. Everybody else is, is following the rules. So we started an undercover operation to try to deal with this so that we could determine just how big um, this case was. And working with the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, we did enough undercover work that we were able to show that this was much larger than just a little bit of just a few people. And that it dealt with some of the markets and that uh, it dealt with watermen both in Maryland and in Virginia that were utilizing the different start times, size limits tagging requirements, et cetera, from one state to the other. And in the middle of the Virginia and Maryland, we also have the Potomac River. So you had three jurisdictions literally within miles of each other that had different um, requirements for if you wanted to take a striped bass, whether it be recreational or commercial. And so, of course, people with a financial uh, vested interest were uh, operating to the to their best advantage, and and take unfortunately taking advantage of our vulnerable fish species. Now, as conservation officers, we were monitoring the Young of the Year Index, and we were seeing that that was beginning to crash in the early two thousands, even though. the biologist consistently said, still a viable fishery, right? If you're, in, if you're here in the nursery and you can see that uh, all of a sudden the young of the year uh, is, is not going up, it's going down, there's going to be a problem in the future. So, um, and then it was always attributed, well, it was a, uh, a bad year based on weather conditions or that uh, young of the year index um, that class that should have been there, that was impacted by that, uh, that year there was bad pollution or that year there was a lot of added runoff. Um, so there was always an excuse. But, uh, but as conservation officers, we felt that there was, that it was the fact that they were being, the fish were being underreported and taken um, illegally. Because it used to be that uh, years ago, we, um, actually the state would have people that checked the fisheries and actually did, uh, did the actual checking of the number of fish that were being recorded. Well, we went to, Maryland went to a self-reporting. And then we went to a fact that every fish had to be tagged, but was self-reporting um, and an unlimited number of tags. Actually, what it meant was they could just tag every fish they caught, um, falsify the numbers so that the numbers came back with what was the allocation and everything would be okay. And everybody was making uh, an extreme amount of money off of a vulnerable fish. 
And so as we did this case and we started to investigate um, many of the watermen involved, and um, we did a large number of watermen in the um, Southern Maryland and, and um, the Northern Neck of Virginia area, out of every person, out of all the watermen that we investigated, we really only found two that uh, were actually following the rules. Every other one was violating now to different degrees. And it's just like when you see a speeder, a group of speeders coming down the road, you can only catch so many. Mm. So we uh, targeted the prosecution for 17 of those individuals and three corporations. Um, actually, it was a five-week trial uh, in Greenbelt in federal court, in federal district court. Every single person was convicted of federal felonies. They all uh, came in, told, uh, told the judge exactly what, uh, what happened and what they did. The fine and restitutions was about $1.7 million. And of all of the defendants, they all uh, had some form of incarceration, uh, home detention, um, some issue like that, all for, um, all for just uh, taking straight bass. Now, we've all made great cases where it comes up to that is uh, very important. We catch somebody and we turn around and we walk out of court and we go back out and we get uh, in our car and we go back to work to catch somebody else. The difference in this case that uh, really we stayed with the Department of Justice and we tried to help them was we said, well, the reason that these people are doing this is because we have a flawed regulatory system. And that's just not flawed in Maryland or Virginia. It's flawed up and down the East Coast. Because when you deal with the federal system, you have something called proffers, where a person can come in and they, with uh, as they are uh, <clears throat> getting ready for their sentencing, they can actually proffer and help themselves if they uh, assist the government in telling us more things than what we already know about. So a lot of these individuals and these uh, uh, different uh, people involved, whether they were in the case or around the case, uh, became uh, sources of information. And they explained to us um, the different states and what was what was going on. So we then took our show on the road and went to the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries uh, meetings. And we started talking to them about the federal uh, regulatory system and what they did with states. And that's how, if uh, many of your listeners, if they are uh, were involved with striped bass, um, each one of the states, their regulatory process. The reason that they changed it was because of the fact that the game wardens, the people that were out there seeing it every day, were able to get and bring forward what was actually happening. And the fact that uh, self-reporting by people that were making a financial um, uh, investment and interest in a resource might not actually be doing things the uh, correct way. And so it changed uh, up and down the whole East Coast, the reporting requirements and the way fish were uh, allocated through the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. And I'll have to say, um, you can see that uh, there were changes 
uh, made this year to some states, Maryland in particular, um, dealing with still reducing the recreational catch. Um, and the whole reason that that happened this year is in, in Maryland, we do not have the ability to record uh, the actual recreational catch uh, numbers that we have. So rather than doing it scientifically, we were simply doing it as a guess. And we need to take the guesswork out of um, regula- regulations. Mm. We need to use scientific data. And by using scientific data, um, we can make <clears throat> very factual um, information uh, and decisions for the future of our resources. So I'd, I'd have to say that, uh, that, that, was, uh, that was definitely one of my uh, larger uh, cases, but I'll have to say we turned that uh, right around. Um, we rolled that right into another case on the Eastern Shore, and we um, uh, did uh, four more defendants over there that uh, learned from what we were doing uh, on the one side of the bay. They changed just a little bit on their side of the bay, and they started doing it again. And and we caught them, and I want to say their fines were about a half a million dollars uh, in federal court. They, we again prosecuted um, them in federal court, and we continued to change uh, some of the rules and regulations because that's one thing I would say about uh, about game wardens when we look at how thorough some of the investigations um, that we <clears throat> perform are. We we caught all those people and we caught them with pieces of paper. The amount of fish that we actually saw was just in the very uh, infant stages, infancy stages of our investigation. Then we did everything on documents. Um, we did a lot of subpoenas, a lot of search warrants, and we put our cases together based on their actual shipping records and the amount of uh, fish that they actually um, sold. And I can't tell you how many times when we went up there to federal court and these people were looking at um, fines of, of hundreds of thousands of dollars, the defense attorneys that walked in and said, wait a minute, this is just a fish. You can't be serious. And, and I think that's what is, was so significant um, for me was to see that uh, it would have been as, as any more in today's day and age. Sure, we, uh, many of your listeners are dealing with uh, criminal cases and criminal prosecution of crimes against people. A crime against a person where the person can come and say they're a victim is much easier to prosecute and to get a conviction than when you're dealing um, just with a resource because not only do you have to educate um, the prosecuting attorney just to get him to take the case, but then you have to take and uh, you have to educate the judge and you literally have to educate the defense attorney to see the relevance of what their client or clients had been doing to harm the resources. So that is, uh, that's, that's that. I mean, we, we definitely worked on some other cases in, in Maryland. Um, we do have a large commercial fishery off the, um, 
East Coast. I mean, people don't uh, really know that when you look at Maryland, wow, we have a conch fishery. We have a lobster fishery. We have a tuna fishery. We have a scallop uh, fishery. Um, All those exist uh, in such a small state as Maryland, but they bring such a large economic value um, to our to our state that we really have to pay attention uh, to that to those resources and we have worked uh, considerably whether it be with the Fish and Wildlife Service or whether it be with NOAA or officers from you know our surrounding states when we worked with um, Delaware um, when we're you know doing cases with horseshoe crabs or when we're working up and down the whole east coast when we're dealing in the springtime with albers uh, you never know um, what state you're going to be um, working with but when we're, we're dealing with these resources of them are dependent upon all of us working together and sharing information back and forth yeah, no doubt. And uh, we saw the impacts of what you did all the way up the East Coast, which is, you know, the striped bass were almost non-existent. And by implementing all those regulations that made sense, you turned a fishery around uh, all the way across the East Coast from, you know, Maryland to Maine. And it was that that's that's quite a feat to, to affect so many people in so many different ways. And, you know, it's a big sporting fishery because a lot of people like to go out and catch them. They're a lot of fun to catch. You guys have a commercial fishery. We don't have a commercial fishery in Maine and New Hampshire, but it starts to, to get a commercial as you get closer to Maryland. But And then a sustainable population is what we're, we're all trying to get, and we're all trying to work together is the other thing. The watermen, the game wardens, the biologists – because I think we all have the same goals. Sometimes, uh, sometimes as individuals, we we want different things. We want our more money in our pockets, as as you know, the, as catching the fish, and um, that that's where the problem exists. But when problems exist, like you are describing, big holes within uh, regulatory things that people are taking advantage of everywhere when you find out two only two watermen are doing it correctly out of all the watermen you have it's just uh just a crazy oh well what i would uh say is uh, i am actually uh, uh, acquaintances and friends with a considerable number of those uh watermen and the fact is um they learned from this experience and they changed uh, their ways because a lot of them were looking at it as just an individual uh, situation. That, uh, well, if I take a few of those extra fish today, that's really not hurting anything. But then when they saw how much each one was doing, and then they put it together collectively with what they were all doing, then they could see the impact. Mm. And um, so that is uh, that was a, a, a big deal. Obviously, education, whether it be dealing with the, um, you know, uh, any of the users. And, of course, uh, you know, we have down here in Maryland, not unlike we have a lot of issues, there's always a rift between the recreational and the commercial. Because um, Mm -hmm. the, you know, commercial are like, well, all the recreational are out there doing it and they're unregulated. And then, right, you know, the um, 
recreational or like, look how much I spent for my boat. And I just want to go out and fish a couple times a year. And I can't ever catch any fish because look at all those nets and look at what the commercial men are doing. So there's always, there's always a lot of blame uh, to go around, but I think the more we educate and we can uh, help both sides see what is actually what the other one is doing. Mm. uh, I think uh, definitely helps um, for that, uh, for that to go uh, back and forth and we can uh, work together. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's actually a, a good goal. And you're right, once they see, you know, they're, they're looking at the long term because that's their livelihood. So maybe today we take extra, but tomorrow there's nothing there because we're all taking a little extra now. So to, to, to make that change within the industry is, is a huge feat. So um, and, and then to affect the whole East Coast is something. So that, that that's just great. Jack, can you give us one of your, your good game warden stories? Because uh, people on Warden's Watch, they like to hear game warden stories. And I, I, I got to imagine you, you, got a, you got at least one, probably many, in your pocket about, you know, work, working the job and having that, whether it's an investigation or catching that poacher or, you know, and especially with a striped bass in and around that area. Just uh, it's, it's a whole different scenario for a lot of people around the country uh to, to learn about striped bass and the the economic impacts as well as the the sporting impacts and so and you were right in the heart of striped bass country so and uh just a you know a good game warden story is always good <laughs> okay so obviously i'm old enough that i remember the time before we had deer decoys <laughs> And so the first guy in our area, young officer, and I had one of my best friends, another young officer, um, corporal, who was uh, in charge of our area. He had taken the night off. And we got some information about these people going to go uh, spotlighting. Great idea. We'll get this. We'll get take this decoy out and see if we can get them to shoot from the road. So we put the decoy out there. And this is long before we had uh, many uh, rules and regulations concerning how to uh, establish it and uh, where to put it. And I put the decoy in the road and uh, on the side of the road uh, in a field. Uh, He was up on the hill and uh, as the stop vehicle and the car came down the road and went on. And I thought, you know, I don't think they saw that at all. I, I need to try to move that decoy just a little. Well, I ran across the road to move the decoy. And as I was moving the decoy, the car came back. And um, I simply <clears throat> was so worried about trying to catch the people that I didn't uh, lay the decoy down. I stuck the decoy back up and just laid down uh, <laughs> in the field. Right next the to the decoy. decoy. And, uh, <laughs> yes, I was actually right underneath of it. <laughs> and I said to my partner, I called him on the radio and I said, you need to, uh, they're, they're turning in the, in the road. You need to, you need to come right now like turn the siren on you know do something so they don't uh, shoot and uh, just about that time the uh, gun went off and i'll have to say that uh, slug <clears throat> at about 75 yards going right over your head as it goes through that deer is a very scary sound and it <laughs> right through the deer decoy and i went <laughs> turn the siren on. He said, I'm coming. I said, turn the siren on because the only thing I could hear was that 870 from the guy going, you missed. It's my shot to his partner. And the guy goes and works the shell. And I'm like, Oh my God, I hope this guy's a good shot too. So he shoots because what are you going to do? Stand up and get shot in the middle of it. (laughs) So I'm laying there. So he shoots uh, and again, hits the decoy. 
And as I uh, run down the, uh, you know, he stops them right down the street. And as I run down the road, I am um, <laughs> thinking, you know, we all go through a lot of uh, thoughts in your, and, I, and, and of course, at the time, you're always thinking, I've got to do everything I can to, uh, to catch the, the, the people. Uh, but that was, that was one of them. But I, but I have to say, when we took the decoy back to the, um, to the corporal's house, who uh, had gone through all the effort to get that decoy made, mm-hmm. and here we show up, I don't worry at all. Right, because he was sure hoping that he was going to be the first one to ever get a shot, and so so we, uh, but but we did tell that story at both uh, the uh, the guy that was stopping the car and my uh, retirement because uh, I have to say that was uh, that was uh, um, self imposed and it was uh, it was sort of a little bit of a a, a crazy um, uh, situation there, but it was <clears throat> um, it definitely was a little bit. Uh, uh, Humorous afterward, thank goodness nobody got uh, hurt, especially me. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you had a change of pants in this cruiser. <laughs> I, 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 I can tell you, you definitely learn. There's a, there's a young, well, he's not a young guy anymore, but he's a guy I trained. And we were, um, I was just, I just saw him the other day and, and he was like, you remember that night? That, uh, that I was moving that decoy and those people came and you, he said, I, I know they'd shot it if you'd have just let me have that decoy up. And you kept yelling at me on the radio, lay it down, lay it down. And he said, he said, it wasn't ever until your retirement that I, that I heard that story, that I understand why it was so important to lay the decoy down. If there was a car coming by and you were in the field on the same side of the road as the decoy, you know, but, but there's definitely, um, you know, there's, I'm, I can't, I can't tell you that a game warden that you run into that doesn't have uh, some funny uh, stories about uh, confessions or, you know, how many times you, you know, the people did things the first time. And, and as we all know, it wasn't the first time they did it. It was the first time they got caught. Uh, absolutely. So, but, uh, uh, absolutely. You are a hundred percent correct. <laughs> Boy, Jack, I, 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 yeah, that that that's something. That decoy story is is pretty, pretty, pretty good story. I haven't heard one of those yet, but uh, I, I did uh, on one of the former warden's watches. We had a uh, Maine was using the decoy in the back somebody's backyard. They actually caught him, you know, night hunting out their back door using the decoy, which I thought was a uh, pretty brazen too. Uh, it's <laughs> more than I wanted to because I thought that same scenario that happened to you would happen to them and. Uh, I guess you don't have to be in somebody's backyard for that to happen because there is that time from putting it up and, and moving that you, you're you there and you get halfway between the deer and in the road and or where you're going to be. And, uh, you know, you either got to make that decision to run for your spot or run back and try to get that down in time. And uh... <laughs> Well, we were so excited to get the uh, – because if they shot, not only could we get the fact that they – you know, had a weapon, but we could also get the fact that they had the loaded gun on the highway, mm. which was an additional, it was an additional charge mm. or additional ticket that you could write. And so that was, uh, that was always, you know, back when you were a young officer, wow, they've got, a, you know, it's, it's a great case because they shot. And um, so uh, that was a, that was one of those things that we were always uh, looking at that maybe as we got a little bit older, um, we, <clears throat> probably had a little more experience and realized, you know, 
it really doesn't matter. So, yeah. And I've never but, had uh, anybody contest a decoy case either. And there is that adrenaline charge when you hear that gun go off and, you know, apprehend that individual that violated. Uh, but yeah. And then usually they, they, they held their head in their hand because, you know, they don't want to tell their buddies that they, they shot that fake deer. Uh, so that's, uh, <laughs> like I said, I'd never had one contested, so it was good. <laughs> yeah. So I greatly appreciate, uh, all your time this morning and what I would, uh, like to do if, if that's okay is as we, uh, approach, um, some legislation, uh, in different, uh, areas, maybe be able to talk to you about that. That would be awesome. And to be able to, to talk about, uh, the future and, you know, in today's uh, day and age, as we look at, uh, this pandemic that we're all facing, mm. Right. There is still a lot of uh, question and of how did this get started uh, in China? Did it come from a wet market? Mm-hmm. Did, is this uh, right? Is this really how this started? Because if this is, there's definitely legislation that potentially needs to be looked at in not only in uh in the states, but in the uh, federal level in the United States, and if that's the case, um, so that is a uh, that's definitely things that uh, if you get questions about that, uh, that I would be more than happy to uh, discuss with you moving forward. No, that would be awesome, Jack, to get your experience and you know, the, yeah, to, to talk about these discussions because we we know that there is a lot of laws that that come out that that affect wildlife that uh, again are are born out of emotion and not science. So whether that's uh, you know limiting coyote hunting, whether it's mountain lion issues, all kinds of baiting issues, um, and COVID nineteen issues. Now you're right, the illegal import of wildlife and how that started. That's uh, definitely should be on the front of our radar, and we should be starting to address it as much as we can. You know, if that indeed is where it came from. So and certainly uh, is certainly a possibility. It's certainly the, a probable idea, and hopefully we can address these illegal wildlife issues, you know, around the country and around the world. And uh, having your opinion on legislation that is actually coming would be an awesome thing for Warden's Watch and our Thin Green Line podcast. So, um, yeah, thank you for offering your expertise in that, and thank you for your service as a game warden and as a senator, because that's it's so important to be involved in political issues that affect wildlife. I know year after year we have our hunters and our trappers and everybody descend on our state capitals to address issues. But to have somebody that has the know that all that information and that knowledge being involved in legislation is just awesome. So thank you again for your service on both sides. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you today. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those 
who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.